Good morning. Please open your Bibles, if you have one, to John chapter 7. It's good to be back with you all after two weeks of rest and vacation. We will resume our study of John's gospel. And as you turn to John chapter 7, let me just remind you of a, of a macro overview of the gospel. 21 chapters, and if you want to think of it in three chunks, you can think of chapters 1 through 12 as focusing on Jesus' public ministry, what he did out and about among people. And that covers about three or four years, depending on whether or not the unnamed Feast of the Jews is a, um, is a Passover. Then 13 to 17 is Jesus' private ministry with the disciples. One evening, three or four hours, 13 to 17. And then 18 to 21, Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, his passion, three or four weeks, given the post-resurrection appearances. So one to 12, Jesus' public ministry, three or four years. 13 to 17, Jesus' private ministry, three or four hours. And 18 to 21, Jesus' passion, three or four weeks, roughly. And we are deep into that first section. It's going to end in chapter 12. And we've seen the height of Jesus' success, Notably, it is Samaritan village, the only unqualified success Jesus has. And then starting in chapter 5, we've seen the beginning of unbelief. As Jesus' opposition rises against him, he heals the man at the pool, and the people begin to persecute him, and then when they understand his claims to deity, they try to kill him. We see the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6, which even though it starts out looking good, it ends with a mass defection not just of the crowd, but of Jesus' own disciples. Well, in chapter 7, we're going to see Jesus go up to the Feast of Booths, one of the mandatory feasts, week-long celebration. And at the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem, we're going to see some more of the sifting of Israel. We're going to see more and more of the development of the opposition against Jesus. So this section is, is over two days in the Feast of Booths. You can look at chapter 7. After he goes up, we started last time we were here in 714, about the middle of the feast. And from there, all the way to verse 36 is one event, one encounter. And then starting in 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day. So John's description of Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem during the Feast of Booths really covers two events. One in roughly the middle of this week-long feast. That's where we're at. And then the last great day of the feast. And in both of these, we're going to see the, the variety of responses to Jesus' ministry. And we're going to see the rising of the opposition. So let's begin by reading the 11 verses we'll look at this morning. John 7, 25 to 36, as we consider. And, and John would have us... And I would have us, God would have us, make up our minds um, if you're not made up, if if you have not come to a clear conclusion. Who Jesus is, could this be the Christ? And we're going to see different people's wrestling with Jesus' identity. John 7, 25 to 36. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. 
but I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know, for I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. Lord God, we pray that you would give us the understanding and the insight these, these Jews did not have. They, they tripped over, misunderstood, misinterpreted our Lord's words. Give us the understanding by your spirit that we might not make that mistake. We might rightly apprehend who Jesus is, that we might settle and conclude this is the Christ, the Savior of the world. In Jesus' name, amen. This text is a continuation, as I pointed out earlier, of this single event starting in chapter 7, verse 14. And what's interesting is John frames it as Jesus going up sort of guerrilla style to the Feast of Booths. He doesn't go up openly, doesn't go up publicly, because in verse 1, chapter 7, 1, the Jews are seeking to kill him. And so he tells his brothers, no, I'm not going to go up in the big family entourage. He goes up secretly, privately. But then in verse 14, in the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. And we don't know what about. It's, it's interesting. This is one of those events where John is not focused on Jesus' teaching, but rather the consequence of his teaching. All the action is the discussion about what he's teaching. John's going to grab one or two things from Jesus' teaching to, to interact with the op- opponents. But we don't know what he was teaching about. My assumption would be that John thinks has demonstrated that we're familiar with the content of Jesus' life. He may even be referencing the other Gospels, and I'd assume the other Gospels can tell us the types of things Jesus taught in the temple. That's not John's focus here. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. And then what we focus on is the discussion that the Jews marvel at his ability to teach. He hasn't had any formal training. So how, how is he able to do this? And that sets up Jesus' response. Look, and, and this, is a, this is something he has repeated and emphasized throughout the gospel. In verse seven, in um, verse 16, Jesus said to them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. One of the reasons, if not the reason, John's gospel so emphasizes the deity of Christ it's because again and again in John's gospel, I hope you've seen this, again and again in John's gospel, Jesus emphasizes the absolute necessity to understand he is sent from the Father. He is commissioned. He's not doing this on his own. And because he comes from the Father, his words are the Father's words. In other words, the deity of Jesus, the, the being sentness of Jesus by the Father is what establishes the authority of his word. And Jesus insists you've got to receive and believe his word if you want to be saved. And so again and again, that's what we focus on. That's what we're focusing on here. John's concern is is the side discussion about Jesus' teaching and his authority. 
And at the end of the last time we studied this, Jesus invited a judgment on himself. Look at verse 24. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. The Bible tells us how to evaluate, how to size up, and in specific, what the Messiah should look like, what the prophet like Moses should do and say. And so Jesus invites that type of evaluation. Our text this morning then shows a number of attempts to to receive this invitation. Jesus says, judge with righteous judgment, and we we see a variety of peoples. Look, verse 25, some of the people of Jerusalem. We're going to see some of their reasoning as they struggle through this. They reference the authorities in verse 26. In verse 32, the Pharisees. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees. In verse 35, the Jews. There's a variety of responses as people try to make sense of Jesus. And so we see from John's vantage point how the crowd is processing Jesus. And, and in doing so, we see Jesus respond to that. That's really the movement in our text, is John tells us about the different responses of peoples, and then he plucks in verse 28, Jesus, so Jesus proclaimed as he taught. This is almost like an aside. He's teaching. He's aware of what's going on. So he says something to address it. And then after the Pharisees send officers to arrest him, Jesus says something else. And that's what John's focusing on these various responses of the peoples, and one or two things Jesus says to them. And this is moving us through the Feast of Booths. And it's moving us to understand why it is Israel will cry out with a voice, we have no king but Caesar, crucify him. We've seen the defection of his disciples. We've seen the Jewish authorities grow in wanting to kill him. Now we're going to see even the people in Jerusalem begin to struggle and sift and stumble over him. So let's look at this in two points. Two points. First, Jesus' true identity. Jesus' true identity. And by the way, this theme of Jesus' identity and the authority of his word is, goes through both of these. Look over at chapter 8, verse 15. You judge according to the flesh. We're still on the issue of judgment, sizing Jesus up. A lot of what he says in our text this morning will get picked up over there as well. Over there as well. So now we're introduced to this new group. I say new because this is just a new title as we've worked through who, who are we dealing with. And what we're dealing with here are some of the people of Jerusalem are perplexed. Some of the people of Jerusalem, therefore, said. So this is a subgroup, in other words, and this is significant, that has not been privy to everything that happened in chapter 6. Remember in chapter 6, this giant crowd finds him and he feeds them and they cross the sea and then they had a dialogue this crowd, this crowd's from Jerusalem. They weren't there. And so Jesus doesn't actually deal with them as strongly as he does with some of the other Jews. That They know less. They're accountable for less. So a lot of the same themes we've seen in this book reoccur here, but this group doesn't know about chapter 6. This, book, this group doesn't have that background, and they are perplexed. They say, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? Which is interesting because some of the people here are unaware of the plot to kill Jesus. Turn back to chapter 7, uh, verse 19 and 20. Um, Why do you seek to kill me? Verse 20. The crowd said, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? So in that encounter, there's a large chunk of the crowd that has no idea that the religious leaders are trying to kill Jesus. And so they think he's a paranoid. These people are beginning to put together, oh, wait a second, there is a guy they're trying to, maybe, is this, is this the guy they're trying to kill? 
That, that's, that's what they're doing there. Their, their first blank here is wonder, wonder. Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? So as Jesus speaks, they put it together. Oh, okay, this is the guy they're trying to kill. And what perplexes them, what, what confuses them is their wonder is Jesus is being sought to be put to death by the religious leaders, and here he is speaking openly. Normally, when someone knows people are out together, they go and hide, and they go into hiding. Jesus is speaking boldly. He's speaking publicly. The blank here is Jesus is bold and fearless. This amazes them. And I I said before, Jesus' hesitancy to go up to Jerusalem was not due to his fear of these people. It's all about the timetable. It's all about being crucified on the right day at the Passover, not during the Feast of Booths five months too early. And so Jesus is fearless, and these people are confused, because we've seen the people are afraid of the Jews. Look, look back in chapter 7 to verse 12. There was much muttering about him among the people. Some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Jesus wasn't afraid of the Jews. Jesus was openly teaching in the temple. And presumably over a large period of time, such that these Jews of Jerusalem are astonished because on the one hand, there are people trying to arrest and kill him. Here he is. Easy to spot, yet why do the authorities not respond? Why don't they do anything? The, the religious leaders' inactivity it makes them confused. They, we know they want to get him. Here he is. He's easy. He can get got. Why aren't they doing anything? And so they say, perhaps the authorities know this really is the Christ. I'm not sure if that's sarcastic or not. They're entertaining either. They're saying the authorities have changed their mind. Perhaps he's convinced them. Or there could be a sort of sneeringness to that. I'm not entirely sure, but they are perplexed. Why don't they get this man who should be easy to get? He's right here. He's right in plain view. He's not going anywhere. Why don't they do anything? And this brings to mind um, Proverbs 28.1. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. We, we learn from the other Gospels part of the reason the Pharisees and the religious leaders hesitate. They fear the people. They fear public opinion. And Jesus still has a fair amount of public opinion on his side. Even as late as Luke 22, 2, the chief priests and the scribes are seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. And so Jesus is bold, fearless. I I love that about our Savior. He's not afraid of these people. They are fearful of him. They are fearful of him. But just as soon as they, this crowd voices this opinion, could it, could it be they know something we don't know? Could it be they found out this is the Christ? They counter with, no, 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 that can't be it, with their confusion. We go from wonder to confusion, from wonder to confusion. But we know, they say in verse 27, where this man comes from. When the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from which is an odd thing to say. Nothing in the Old Testament predicts that the Christ will be unknown. And so we, we struggle with what are they, what are they saying? What, what's, where do they get this idea from? It's possible they think the Christ will just sort of appear magically, but I don't think that's what's going on. I think rather, here's your blank, they believe that he would be unknown, that he would be unknown. And as we read some of the extant 
um, rabbinic writings from that time period, it seems to be something of the idea of this. The prophet like Moses, the great prophet who would be raised up after Moses, like Moses, would disappear for a time. Remember, Moses spent 40 years in Midian before he returned. So when Moses arrives in Pharaoh's court 40 years after he's last been in Egypt, there's a sense in which he arrives out of nowhere. Oh, yes, we know who he is. We know where he's from. But he's been out of public view for a long time. This is the way John the Baptist functioned. In fact, in uh, Luke 180, we read of John the Baptist. The child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So John the Baptist is born, has this remarkable birth story, and then he gets benched and sidelined, and he's in obscurity until it's time for him to come forward. And yet that's not what happened to Jesus. So I think they're expecting something like that. N- nothing in the Old Testament would lead you to expect that, but that was their expectation. And so they are confused because they believe Messiah will be unknown. We know where this man comes from. It's interesting, by the way. Um, they, they complain about the exact opposite thing later. Part of what we see here are these, as these people try to size Jesus up, rather than doing it with truth, with his own words, they're bringing their own opinions, their own prejudices, their own expectations to bear, and, they, and they're going to stumble and miss the mark. They're going to stumble and miss the mark. They think the Messiah will be unknown. Look at, look at 742. They say he's going to be unknown, but in 742, has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Well, that's what some of the people say. But also then... Um, in chapter 9, 29, here's their complaint. It's, 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 the people are fickle, and they're not sizing Jesus up with purely biblical estimation. Here, they're tri- tripped up over, we, we know where he's from, and we're not supposed to know where he's from. Look at nine twenty nine. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And th- these people are rather hard to please. And... and For us, here's the challenge. If you're here today trying to make up your mind about who Jesus is, that's a wonderful thing to do. But Jesus, in verse 24, makes it clear there's a right way and a wrong way to evaluate him. Look at verse 24 again. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right or righteous judgment. Um, and we're going to see a number of people in these next chapters trip up over Jesus for stupid reasons, for unbiblical reasons, for unrighteous reasons. They, they rightly spot this man is bold and fearless, and we can't explain why the authorities aren't taking this clear and obvious opportunity. We know they want to kill him. Why aren't they acting? What do they know that we don't know? But then they immediately counter it with this extra-biblical expectation. But, but we know where he's from, so this can't be the Christ. And so I would, I would urge you, if you're trying to make up your mind who Jesus is, do so with right and righteous judgment. Don't expect the Messiah to look like what you want him to look like. You know, people will sometimes say, I like to think of God this way. That is a terrible way to start thinking about God. Why should you expect God would be like you? People will say, that. I like to think of God this way. My God would never do that. Your, your God would never do that because your God doesn't exist. And he can't do that. If God exists, he has to tell us who he is. He has to reveal himself to us. Our job is to receive and evaluate properly. We're not the measurement. We're not the standard. These people have these extra biblical expectations. And even though they rightly apprehend the leaders, 
are clearly nervous, they're timid, they're afraid, but we know where he's from. And so how can this be the Christ? So Jesus has something to say to this. Jesus has something to say to this. They believe he would be unknown, point two, and they stumble over their familiarity, which is a dominant theme. Turn back to chapter four. This is the reason, in part, that Jesus gives why Israel will reject him in John's gospel. Remember, his one unqualified success is in Sychar. He goes to the Samaritan village, and they, they love him. They come to believe him. They confess this is indeed the Savior of the world. And they ask him to stay with them. Stay, stay, don't go, stay. Why does Jesus leave? After two days, verse 43, he departed for Galilee. Why would he do that? For Jesus had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Jesus came to be rejected. He's not getting rejected at Sychar. He's going to get rejected by those who think they know him. And that, of course, becomes a major reason these people trip up over him. If you remember back in chapter 6, verse 42, he feeds the 5,000. He starts talking about how he's the bread come down from heaven. And what is the reason these people grumble? Look at verse 42. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? Their familiarity with him breeds contempt. Their familiarity with him breeds contempt. And likewise for us, you may think you know Jesus. You've, you've seen the flannel graphs. You know, you've seen the little story Bibles. And, I, and I'd urge you to, to read afresh, to, to, to see him as he's represented in God's word and, and settle the issue. Is this the Christ? Could this be the Christ? Is this the Christ? And judge with righteous judgment. So they stumble over their familiarity with him. They stumble over their familiarity with him, which then brings to Jesus' response. And I would sort of summarize Jesus' response as saying something like this. How can you judge justly when you're ignorant? How can you judge justly when you're ignorant? I, I think is what he's saying in essence. Let me, let me read it. You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So what is Jesus saying? Well, he recognizes and grants in part, part of their assumption is true. He could challenge them at the foundation of their premise. Why on earth would you expect the Messiah will be unknown? But he doesn't. What he's saying is, am I, maybe, there is a real sense in which I am unknown. You might know that I'm from Galilee. They think he's from Galilee. No one in this text picks up on the fact that he's actually from Bethlehem. But a little later, they will pick up on the issue of Galilee. They know that. They know most recently he's been operating out of Capernaum with his family. So they've got some idea of his recent whereabouts, where he's been recently. But yet, in another sense, they have no idea where he's from. They're, They're... confident in their own ability to size them up, and they're, they're confident in their own knowledge when, in fact, they're ignorant. They may know Jesus' earthly origin. That's partly true, at least his recent history. There's no indication that any of these people know he's actually from Bethlehem, but they can track him back to Galilee. They can do that. And yet, they do not know him who sent Jesus. And that's Jesus' point here. 
In some sense, he says, you're right, you, you do know where I'm from. And another, much more profound and important sense, you are completely ignorant of where I'm from. Which is to say, maybe you don't know me as well as you think you do. And so maybe that might interfere with your ability to size me up and judge me righteously. They do not know him who sent Jesus. Now, this is a, a common line of reasoning that Jesus uses. Again, remember all the way back to chapter 5. Here's Jesus' logic. He and he alone has had a full revelation of the Father. The Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And the Son then, in response, his act of love to the Father is to imitate and reflect everything he sees the Father do, plus or minus nothing. Thus, Jesus can say to Thomas in chapter 13, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Thus, Jesus is the perfect representation, the perfect emissary of the Father. Thus, how you treat Jesus is how you treat the Father. Thus, if you know the Father, you know Jesus. That, that's Jesus' logic. I can tell you, Jesus says, what you think of my Father by what you think of me, and vice versa. That's Jesus' assumption, that he and the Father are so unified in purpose, in glory, that there is no bifurcation. So he says at the end of five, look, if you believed Moses, you believe me. If you knew my father, you'd know me. I know you don't know my father, he says in chapter five, because you don't know me. This is a similar type of logic. It's not as blunt. It's not as hard. I think in part because these people know less. He's holding them accountable for less. There's, a, there's more gentleness here. And rather than saying you don't know God, which he says pretty plainly in chapter five, here he simply says you, you don't know him who sent me. I have come not on my own accord, but he who sent me is true, and him you do not know. And again, Jesus insists, I am not self-appointed. This wasn't my big idea. I am a commissioned, sent person. And even though you know where I'm from in one sense, you don't know him who sent me. And that's the problem. I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. Jesus is God's commissioned spokesman. Jesus is God's commissioned spokesman. And, and you've heard Jesus say this again and again in John's Gospel. I could quote a dozen passages, two from chapter 5, 5.43. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. Or in verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Notice the this, this shift. Jesus' words, and believing Jesus' words is believing him who sent Jesus. They're, they're, they're unified. They're unified. Jesus is God's commissioned spokesman, but they don't know God. Thus, they don't know Jesus. They don't know God. Thus, they don't know him. Turn, turn back to chapter 5, where Jesus makes this same line of reasoning. Um, 5.36. When they accuse Jesus of testifying to himself, Jesus says, The testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me, that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. How on earth can you say that, Jesus? That's a big claim. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. 
The logic, again, is how you treat Jesus is how you treat the Father. In other words, there is no room for someone to say, I believe in God and I love God, but I, I don't believe in Jesus. Jesus insists, no, you don't. And again, this is taking Jesus on his own terms. Jesus and faith in Christ cannot be placed alongside of other world religions. This is not one path of many. Jesus certainly won't allow that. Jesus certainly won't allow that. They do not know him who sent Jesus. They know they don't know God, thus they don't know him. Look at 819. Again, this, these are the themes that are dominating this section. The Hyde Feast Day. 819, they said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you neither know me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. You picking up this repetition of theme? They're a package deal. What you do with Jesus is what you do with the Father. What you do with the Father is what you do with Jesus. There, there is no separation. And that's all based upon the notion that Jesus is the one who reflects, who images the perfect representation of God. That's, that's the logic. So what ha- what's, what's the response to this then? So to summarize, the people are bewildered. Hey, we can't understand why his opponents aren't trying to arrest him. Maybe they know something we don't know. Yet, on the other hand, we know where this guy's from. And Jesus says, do do, do you really know where I'm from, though? See, they're overconfident in their ability to size up Jesus. They assume they know God. Jesus, in a kind of subtle and kind way, says, no, you don't. The danger is, again and again in this gospel, we saw with Nicodemus, is, is overconfidence in our own ability to evaluate truth. I mean, what might a right response to this be? You just, if, if, if Jesus just said, I don't know who sent him, who, then who sent you? Where are you from? Instead, we get this response. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So the response, they were seeking to arrest him. Now there's some difficulty here because it's, it's not entirely obvious who the they is. There, there are two options. The most natural grammatical antecedent of they is these people in Jerusalem. The, the problem with that take is nothing Jesus says is overtly offensive. I, I've highlighted how he actually toned it down. It's possible that it's the people. More likely, I tend to think, that hearing um, the they is the authorities. So the two options of who the they is are the authorities or the people. The authorities are mentioned in verse 26. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? And the they would link back to that. Or most naturally, grammatically, but contextually less likely, it's the people. And what we're going to get is a contrast. There's one group trying to seeking to arrest Jesus, and there's another group coming to faith in Jesus. So rather than landing ex- explicitly, I think the focus here is this this split. Um, and the other focus is to see that Jesus is sovereignly protected. They were sovereignly unable to seize him. They were sovereignly unable to seize him. Jesus began this chapter with a focus on God's timing. We see that the son is intent, not just on his father's work, but in his father's time. Jesus, if you go back to chapter 7, uh, verse 6, 
Jesus said to his brothers, urging him to go up, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. And Jesus rebuked, I'm focusing on my father's timetable. Here we see the reciprocal. The son is focused on the father's timing. And, and John's wording is simply divi- is insinuating divine protection. We don't know how he was protected from being arrested. We just know it wasn't his time, so we can't, which is somehow God sovereignly protected him. Somehow, the one who rules creation did not allow his son to be arrested. And so we see this, this flip side. As Jesus focuses on his father's will and on his father's timetable, he is divinely protected by his father. And the same, in one sense, is even true of us. God has numbered the days of our lives. If we focus on fulfilling his will, you are immortal until the day that God has determined for you to be with him. Jesus is completely unafraid, and here in part we see the basis of that fearlessness. He knows he's about his father's will. He knows when he's supposed to die, and he knows, therefore, he is unstoppable until then. It's just a simple passive statement. They were unable to because this time had not yet come. We're hastening to the time. The time is soon going to be here. The hour is not yet. The hour is not yet. And turn over to chapter 12 just to, to, to show you the, the shift in the book. In chapter 12, some Greeks are brought to Jesus to speak with them, and Jesus uses that as the trigger of... Um, declaring it. Look at verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethesda in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went up and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. So Andrew and Philip come and tell Jesus, there are some Greeks who want to see you. And Jesus responds, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come. So through John's gospel, my hour is not yet, my hour is not yet. The woman at the well, the hour is coming. It's almost here. He tells his mother at the wedding in Cana, my hour is not yet. He tells his brothers, my time is not yet. But here in chapter 12, it's now is the hour. The hour is here. Chapter 17. His high priestly prayer, that same focus is on his hour has it come. Look at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. So the hour is the cross, the passion, the death, burial, the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus has his eye fixed on that event. And he's committed to his father's work, his father's timetable, and his father is protecting him. His father's protecting him. Now, that's one response. There's a seeking to arrest him. There's also many believed in him because of his many signs. Many believed in him because of his many signs. Verse 31, yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? And again, notice, no one denies Jesus' miracle-working ability. No one denies it. Even his enemies don't deny it. His enemies just claim he's doing it by Satan. And so we see some come to faith. Now, before you get too excited, as John's gospel, especially into chapter 8, goes, there's a certain question mark over this. We've already seen the negative implications of a faith wrought by miracles. Remember when he comes to uh, Galilee in chapter 4? 
and the nobleman's son is sick, and Jesus says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply won't believe. You remember the Jews who ate the bread and crossed the sea, and Jesus says to them, truly, truly, you're not seeking me because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the bread. And we remember the people in Jerusalem in chapter 2, when he was in Jerusalem, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he himself was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. So these people are certainly doing better than the people trying to arrest Jesus. But I would suggest to you, if you think, okay, we're good, they're safe, maybe look over in chapter 8, in the Feast of Booths, verse 31, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, so whether or not this is the exact same group or a bigger group that includes even more people who came to faith in him, this is still the same week. That's the same area. We're in Jerusalem. And Jesus says to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Notice again, the mark of a true disciple is they abide, they remain, they keep his word as opposed to the disciples who said, this is a hard word, who can hear it and left. But eventually, if you keep reading, and I won't, these people want to kill him who had believed in him, and he calls them sons of the devil. So it's a good start for these people to believe in Jesus. But if we keep working through chapter 7 and 8, I would not conclude yet they're home free. We'll see. But that's certainly better than trying to arrest Jesus. Certainly better than trying to arrest Jesus. They're focused on signs and miracles, which is what makes it dubious. Yet many of the people believed in him when they said... When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So the question still, is this the Christ? And they're sizing him up, which then gets to Jesus' unknown destination. Jesus' unknown destination. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I'll be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me. And you will not find me where I am. You cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me where I am? You cannot come. So we start with the Pharisees, the heard, heard, hearing the crowd they send officers to arrest Jesus, and the they is the Pharisees and the chief priests. Notice the, the growing conspiracy. The Pharisees are not um, necessarily on the same page as the chief priests. The chief priests, especially in Jerusalem, this is the Sadducees. These are the people who rule the temple. They, they are theological liberals. They don't believe in a resurrection. And yet their common opposition to Jesus has led them to unify, at least here. This is a further escalation of the, the opposition to Christ, that the Pharisees and the chief priests in Jerusalem would work together. And so they send officers to arrest Jesus. Now, this is good storytelling. This is good dramatic um, narrative because we're not going to see what happens as a result of it until chapter 7, verse 45. Look at 45. The officers came and said, so, so they're sent out. The tension's raised. Uh-oh. We, we go from seeking to arrest Jesus to we're going to send some people to do it right now. So the shift is we're looking for a good opportunity. We're looking for a good time. We're looking to a propitious moment, going from that to go get him. Go get him. Why? They hear the crowd muttering these things. 
We've already seen the crowd is afraid to speak openly for fear of the Jews. And now some of these people are speaking openly, and they're saying, maybe this is the Christ. Maybe this is the Christ. Or maybe the Pharisees heard the people muttering, saying, why aren't the leaders doing anything? I mean, you can imagine the Pharisees would not be happy if they heard the crowd muttering, maybe, maybe they believe he's the Christ. So for whatever reason, whichever of these things they've heard, they, just, they spring into action, and they send out these officers. They will seek him. I mean, they send out these officers to arrest Jesus. And we'll find out later what comes of that in a week or two. So they get sent out. But what John wants us to see is Jesus' response to this, just as the initial musings of the crowd had a response from Jesus. So this activity by the Pharisees, and this is a further escalation. We're going from generally just looking for an opportunity to sending out officers to arrest him. So what does Jesus say? He gives a warning. He gives a warning. He says to them, I will be with you a little longer. Then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. What is the nature of Jesus' warning? It's this. Soon he will return to him who sent him. Soon he will return to him who sent him. And the reason why I say Jesus' unknown destination is we've already determined these people don't know where he's from. Therefore, when Jesus speaks of returning to where he's from, they trip up on it. And we see that because they think he maybe is talking about going and teaching the Greeks. Soon he will return to those who sent him. By the way, this is Jesus' first mention of a theme that continues through chapter 12. Um, just as Jesus' hour is approaching him, Jesus begins to warn those, peop- those hearers. And there's a sense of warning for us, don't take too much time. Don't take too much time. Today is the day of salvation. Look, look at chapter 8, where Jesus makes it even more dire. 8.21, he said to them, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sins. Jesus saying, hurry up figuring things out, guys. There's going to come a day where you wish I was still here. There's going to come a day where you wish you could interact with me. You won't be able to. Turn over to chapter 12. As we begin to approach the end of this first big section, look at verse 35. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And so again, back to anyone here who's sitting on the fence trying to figure out what they make of Jesus. There's a warning to not take too much time. I'll I'll tell people, take all the time you need, but don't take any more time than that. Um, Hearts can harden just as they can soften. Jesus warns these people. It's the first time, it won't be the last time. I'm going away soon. I'm going away soon. And then you're going to want to find me, and you're not going to be able to find me. It's ironic. He's talking about a future time of them seeking him and not finding him. When this entire week they've been seeking him to put him to death. But he's, he's talking about a different type of seeking. It's talking, there's, there's irony here at the end. Um, they will seek him and not be able to find him. They will seek him and not be able to find him. 
which then leads finally to the Jews' confusion. Now, who John means by the Jews is in potentially distinct from many of the people, as in potentially distinct from some of the people of Jerusalem, is not entirely clear. I'm thinking this probably includes the Pharisees and the chief priests, as frequently the term the Jews is specifically the hostile enemies of Jesus, the Jews. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? Where I am, you cannot come. And this, and this ends this first event. You'll notice the very next verse on the last day. So John is highlighting the ignorance of Jesus' enemies. This goes right over their head. Jesus is making a reference to the crucifixion, his death. They cannot follow him where he goes to the cross. And then from the cross, he returns to the Father. They cannot go there either. And they completely miss it. They're confused. They think, in fact, potentially he plans to escape to teach the Gentiles. What does he mean? Because Jews wouldn't go to be where the dirty Gentiles are, so maybe that's what he's thinking. He'll escape and go teach the Gentiles. And you'll note here, their, their misunderstanding drips, drips with irony, drips with irony. They, they take another guess at it in chapter 8. Look at 8.22, 8.21. Um, he said to them again, I am going away, you will seek me, and you will die in your sins. Where I am going you cannot come. So the Jews said, first time they guessed dispersion among the Greeks, second time suicide. Will he kill himself? Since he says where I'm going, you cannot come. Their guess has deep irony in it. Um, we saw in chapter 12, what is the event that causes Jesus to know the hour is here? Finally, it's here. It's the Greeks coming to seek him. When Philip and Andrew come and say, hey, Jesus, there's some Greeks who want to see you. Okay, now he knows this is the hour. So in one sense, they're onto something. In another sense, through the cross, through the crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, we know the gospel does eventually go to the Greeks, doesn't it? Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. So Jesus' reference to going away by means of the cross and exaltation up to the Father, is precisely the means by which he, according to Ephesians, gives gifts to men, pours out his spirit, and the gospel spreads out. Jesus does intend to go and teach the Greeks and the Gentiles through the agency of his church, by the powering of his spirit. And so for the, for the attentive reader of John's gospel, what they say is dripping with irony. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. He's going to teach the Gentiles. I'm... Unless you're Jewish, you're a Gentile, and you're thankful Jesus teaches the Gentiles. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. But they completely misunderstand. John wants us to see they're not tracking an iota with him. They're not tracking an iota with him. So, so what do we conclude? Jesus has given proof after proof of his identity. Jesus has again and again testified to who he is, and these people aren't really listening. They're bringing in their own agenda, their own um, expectations, and they're tripping up over that. His enemies are becoming emboldened. Jesus is fearless. But if, if you're here this morning, John is showing us this to show us in some sense the folly of the thought process that rejects Jesus. And there's a warning implicit here that you're not going to have forever to figure this out. 
And if you don't figure this out, you're going to die in your sins. And so the question ringing in our ears from all these people is, could this be the Christ? Is this the Christ? When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this? Yes. Yes, this is the Christ. God has sent a Savior for us. Let us learn from the negative example of most of these people. Let us judge Jesus with righteous judgment, not bringing our own expectations, who we want him to be. Let us instead receive him as he is. I'll have a word of prayer and we'll sing our closing song. I'll invite the worship team up. Lord God, we thank you um, for giving us eyes to see and ears to hear. We thank you that you have sent your son. You have clearly testified to him. You have not left us in doubt. And so, Lord, we pray that you would um, cause us not to waver, waffle, but rather that we would um, act upon that confidence and that knowledge, that we would receive him as he is, that we would set our seal on this, that you are true. In Jesus' name we ask this, amen.